listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ in the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. While he, Jesus, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy, full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but to go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. So Jesus kept up the pace, served himself into the ground and began to despise people. He didn't do that. Jesus kept up the pace, served himself into the ground, and began to despise people. That's the reversed standard version, isn't it? It's not what it says. But he, Jesus, would withdraw to desolate places and to pray. The word that's used there for desolate places, abandoned, empty, the desert, the wilderness. Jesus, but. This is Jesus pulling away intentionally, deliberately, not letting The ministry suck the life out of his relationship with his heavenly father. You see, the higher your drive, the more downtime you need. The higher your drive, the more downtime you need. The more significant your work for the glory of God, the more you need to prioritize that secret closet in a desolate place. Your secret prayer closet. Your secret closet in a desolate place. Jesus had it. If you're following Jesus, you've got to have it too. If you say that you are a Christ follower, Jesus is characterized throughout the Gospels as having continued opportunity, continued time that he's taking to go away to a desolate place, a lonely place, a place with no smartphone, no iPad, no internet access, no television, no spiritual book. Even though it might be good, there are plenty of them out there. There's no book like the book of books, the Bible, and an empty book that you need to fill up your journal where you're taking notes about the Bible. Jesus prioritized secret time with his father, alone time, an abandoned place, a private place where it was just him and his heavenly father. Be careful of success without success. Be careful of success without success. We've all done it. We all do it. We ask God to bless our business. Oh, Lord, bless my business. I need more income. I need more finances. I want to be able to do what? To give you glory. And God blesses the business. He gives us more financial resources. He gives us the opportunity to spread his kingdom. But what do we do? We get busy. The blessing makes us busy. God gives us what we've asked for, and we become so busy The success ruins us. 
Be careful of success without success. Jesus has the crowds coming to him. They are following him. They're chasing him. And if Jesus let himself, he would do what you and I do. You know, people have said this. We joke when we hear it. It's the ministry I love. It's the people I can't stand. Wouldn't it be ironic if Jesus, the one who came to seek and save the lost, for God so loved the world, he loved the world that he gave his only uniquely brought forth one-of-a-kind son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Wouldn't it be ironic if in that process, Jesus being sent out into the world to love the world, to reach those who didn't know they needed to be reached, to love those who are unlovable, Wouldn't it be ironic if Jesus, in the process, burnt out and began to despise people, began to see people as interruptions, inconveniences? I know that none of us struggle with that. You ask God to give you a woman who you can marry, and a man if you can marry. Men marry women, women marry men. That's the way it works. That's marriage from the way it's defined in the Bible. We can redefine it all we want, but men marry a woman. Women marry a man. There's coming a day in this country where it's not going to be monogamy anymore because the Pandora's box has been opened. Watch and you'll see. You pray and you ask God for that woman, and God answers you. Some of you think it's not a blessing, it's a curse, it's a blessing. He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord, the book of Proverbs says. A wife of noble character is worth far more than many rubies. And so you ask God to bless and give you that wife, and then the children come. The difficulties in business come. The adversities come. The hardships come. And you're so busy being married and doing what married people do that you forget how you got married in the first place. God gave you your spouse. God gave you your spouse. Remember, you asked him for it. You got it. I remember when I was in college, I was asking God to give me the opportunity to meet this particular girl that I was interested in, and God answered my prayer, and then what happened was the success of getting the answer to that prayer began my downfall. It led to serious depression. It led to turning points after turning point in my life. God used it for his glory, but what happened was the answer to prayer became an idolatrous situation in my life where my life was no longer revolving around Jesus Christ. It was revolving around that person, and God in his sovereignty removed that person from my life, and it was years later when I was 35 years old, a virgin. Yes, I am the 35-year-old virgin. When I got married and God gave me the pièce de résistance, excuse my French, my wife, Janet. Now, if I could go back, I wish that I was even more pure than simply being a virgin. There are things that I've done in my past that I wish I hadn't done, but I did. It's covered under the blood of Jesus. May I never do them again. May I never go back there again. Same is true of your life. But I waited on God for the wife of his choosing in his time. And if I can do it, wait till I'm 35. Not that I recommend it. But if I can do it and come out pretty good, 
with a woman of God and two wonderful young men of God in training, my two sons, then you can do it too. Don't rush God. Don't try to speed up the process. And if God has you single for the rest of your life, you need to be content. You need to be fruitful. You need to multiply. You need to build his kingdom. What you need to be careful of is success without success. Jesus is prioritizing secret, private, one-on-one time with his father. He would withdraw to desolate places and pray as a matter of characteristically. The people are coming, the crowds are coming, ministry is getting busy. The very purpose for which he came is being released and unleashed. People are coming to him, they're recognizing he has the power to heal, he's getting the audience, and instead of letting the audience sweep him away in the busyness and hurriedness of ministry, sweep him away, Jesus proactively pursues his father in the secret closet in a desolate place. You need to have a prayer closet. You need to have some place in your house or outside of your house where you can go, where your wife doesn't go with you. Your children don't go with you. Your smartphone doesn't go with you. Listen, even though I love the God Factor app, I don't take it everywhere with me. I don't take my iPhone with me every place. I need to put it on airplane mode in another room, and I need to go into a different room, and I need to spend time with my Father. Because I know that as we're asking God to bless our ministry here at the church, as we're asking God to bless my life and my family, God's going to answer that prayer. And when he does, I must be careful of success without success. There is no such thing as ministry to other people and a business that's fruitful and financially prosperous if in the process intimacy with God goes out the window. Be careful what you ask for. God will give it to you if you ask with the right motive to glorify him and to exalt him. Listen, it's just not those of us who are in a professional ministry who are called to the ministry. Every single one of us is called to be a fisher of men. Every single one of us is called to hear the words of Jesus. Follow me and I will make you become something you otherwise would not become. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That doesn't matter if you are a businessman or a pastor or an evangelist. Every single one of us is called to follow Jesus. And if you're following Jesus, you too will be engaged in the most significant, most rewarding work there is on this planet. That work is being a fisher of souls, a fisher of men, leading people to Christ, discipling them. Your whole life is supposed to be wrapped up in personal intimacy with your heavenly Father that over Overflows, overflows, overflows. From the secret closet in the desolate place into the public places of your workplace, your work environment, you're not there by accident. Your school, you're not there by accident. There's no such thing as coincidences. There are divine appointments in your marriage. You need to be the man who represents Jesus Christ in that marriage and stop waiting for your wife to get her act together. Be proactive. Women, you need to stop waiting for your man to be the Messiah. He's not. Get over it. You need to help him. You need to be as the church submitting to and following Christ. Well, how can I do that? In the secret closet In a desolate place, you will find your answers. You get this book out called the Bible, such a book that man couldn't write if he would, wouldn't write if he could. You get this book. You go to your secret closet in a desolate place. 
you open it up without distraction. You go to bed 15, 30 minutes earlier the night before so you can get up 15, 30 minutes earlier the next day and you crack open God's word and you read it and you take your journal and you write down the things that God's saying to you. What a tremendous treasure and gift that will be one day for those of you who have children. You say, well, I, hadn't, I never even started that. I missed all this time. Well, don't miss another day. What a legacy to see how you prayed and you sought God and you were interacting with the Lord in the private, intimate moments of your life and God was showing up. Be careful of success without success. Whatever else a man or a woman pursues in their life, if you pursue anything apart from it being the overflow of personal intimacy with God, you're missing God's best. Everything in your life has got to be an overflow of what God is saying to you, speaking to you, teaching you, challenging you about in the secret closet, in the desolate place where you're in his word, you're chewing on his word, you're listening. Listen, don't go in the closet and babble. Don't, be, don't let it be a one-sided conversation. If it's going to be one-sided, let God speak and you be silent. Let him teach you from his word. You're not too young to get into this habit. Stop waiting for your peers to do it, to be a man or a woman of God. You do it. You say you might be too old. I lost time. I lost opportunity. Well, don't waste another week. God can do more in one moment in that secret place, in that desolate place where it's just you and him than you could do in all of the years you've done before in the power of man. The enemy of God's good is often man's best. The enemy of God's good is often man's best. Do you hear what I am saying here? The enemy of God's good in your life is often man's best. Stop giving your best efforts and instead let God bring his good through you. That will be an overflow of your private abiding with him. Abraham Lincoln said it well. And Jesus was being tempted even now as his ministry was growing. What do you mean by that, Mike? Jesus was being tempted perhaps right now more than at any other time in his ministry directly by the devil because he is experiencing the blessing of God. Abraham Lincoln said this. He said, nearly all men can stand adversity. Nearly all men can stand adversity. But if you want to test a man's character, give him power. That's enough reason in itself to say that Abraham Lincoln is one of the greatest presidents this country has had. Nearly all men can handle adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Jesus is walking in the very purpose for which his heavenly Father sent him here, the purpose for which before the beginning of time he was to come. He's now God in the flesh. He's working out his ministry. He's healing people, casting out demons. The crowds are getting wind of Jesus. They're coming out of the woodwork, and Jesus' power is evident. It's obvious, and this is probably one of the points of Jesus' greatest vulnerabilities, just like it is in yours. If you're successful as a businessman, if your marriage is going well, your ministry is going well, whatever it is that's going on in your life, if it is blessed, be careful. Be careful because the power is given by God. 
The sphere of influence is given by God. And if you don't prioritize, as Jesus prioritized, that personal abiding intimacy with your heavenly Father, if you don't prioritize that, you're in danger of success without success. Jesus understood that the primary purpose of his existence was to maintain that unity with his Father, intimacy with his Father, closeness with his Father, abiding with his Father. Didn't Jesus say, apart from me, you can do a couple of things pretty good and other things not so good? He didn't say that, John 17. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Some of us, one of the reasons why we're struggling and having so much tremendous hardship is because we're doing something God didn't call us to do in the first place. If God has not called you to do it in the first place, you have no business doing it. You have no business asking him to bless, no business asking him and expecting him to expand and increase the ministry. It's an uphill battle. What God needs from you is not to do something for him. What God needs for you to do is to get out of the way and let him do it through you. That's what God wants. The greatest gift you can give God in your life is the gift of your personal surrender. And you'll never fully understand what that looks like in your life. You'll never have the courage. You'll never have the courage. All of us, by natural inclination, we're cowards. You'll never have the courage to do what God has called you to do. Complete surrender. Unconditional surrender unless you're spending time in the secret closet in a desolate place. You've got to spend time with your father. Let him strip you of the things that concern you. Let him take away the worries. Let him take away your vision. Let him take away your mission. Listen, God has so hammered me repeatedly through the years that I don't even want to take a half of an inch step towards something that I don't know that I know that I know that I know that he's called me to. I don't have time for that, and neither do you. Any time spent pursuing something other than abandoned surrender to Jesus Christ is a step in the wrong direction. You'll never get that time back. Jesus follows closely after his father. The overflow of Jesus abiding with his father is that people are coming Success is happening, and Jesus is modeling us for us. Jesus is showing us what true success looks like. It's personal and abiding and prioritized, proactive intimacy with the Heavenly Father. And as a matter of the overflow, we do what God has called us to do. And the first thing that God has called you to do, the first thing and the most important thing that God has called you to do is to be a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who is intimate with God and ministers out of the overflow in your business, in direct ministry, full-time ministry, in your family, in your workplace. All of what you do publicly is to be an overflow of who you are and who you're seeking privately. Look at the situation that Jesus found himself in. Verse 12. 
while he was in one of the cities, Jesus is in one of the cities. See, he's going out, he's ministering from city to city. There came a man full of leprosy. This is a skin condition. In the Hebrew word, sera'at, the Hebrew word means a stroke or a mark, to have a stroke or a mark. And the net is cast wide that it's not, sim- it's not necessarily Hansen's disease, what we consider today to be full-blown le- medical leprosy. The net is cast much wider here. It's any type of a skin disease or a skin condition, a mark or a stroke on the body. If you had that, you were considered to have a skin issue that's translated as leprosy. meant something different 2,000 years ago than it means today with Hansen's disease. But this man has a big problem because he's full of this stuff. He's full of something that has covered him. That's the terminology that's given here. He's covered. His whole body has something going on with his skin. As an Israelite, as a Jew, the problem is he's supposed to be quarantined. He's not supposed to be out and about putting other people at risk ceremonially, putting other people at risk physiologically as a matter of health concerns. He's not supposed to be doing that. In the Old Testament, in your favorite book of the Bible, the book you've been doing your devotions in, the book of Leviticus. That's a joke. There are regulations given to a man or a woman, a person who has a skin disease. They're not supposed to be out socializing or lest you get other people infected. It's a matter of health, physiology. You're not supposed to be out socializing lest you get somebody else infected spiritually and make somebody else ceremonially unclean because that's what you are. You're not supposed to be out and about doing that. And this man hears about Jesus. What would you do if you were a social outcast? What would you do if you were quarantined? What would you do if you heard of somebody who was able to do what nobody else was able to do, instantaneously heal you? Wouldn't you pursue that person? This man falls at the feet of Jesus. He literally falls at the feet of Jesus and he begs. There's tremendous emotion involved, probably sobbing, weeping, full-grown man, the social outcast, the spiritual outcast, where people probably looking at him and saying, ha, what sin is in this person's life? It's not specific sin in this person's life. There's no mention of specific sin in this passage, but it is a reminder that all sickness is because you and I are living outside of Eden in a fallen world. It's not proper to really give the totality of the significance to simply refer to it as the fall of man. It's really more like a crash. The crash of Adam and Eve in the garden. You and I working hard today because of the crash. You and I having interpersonal relationship difficulties because of the crash. Having financial difficulties because of the crash. All the problems on this side of Eden, outside of Eden, are a direct result. Leprosy, one example. Skin diseases, one example of what happens to man, woman, when they walk away from God. This is a reminder that we're living in a fallen world and somebody has come to rescue us. Somebody has come to save us and his name is Jesus. The man falls at Jesus' feet begging him. He doesn't wonder if Jesus has the capability of healing him. He just wonders if Jesus has the motivation to specifically heal him. If you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I will. 
be clean. He touches him. He touches him. Please don't do that, Jesus. Ceremonial uncleanliness. You're exposing yourself to God knows what. Touches the man. Violates the law, humanly speaking. But we know that he's not violating the law because he gave the law. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai by the finger of God himself writing on that tablet. The same fingers now touching the leprous man. Jesus does what no mere mortal is to do. He touches the man who's unclean. The man is instantaneously healed. And Jesus has the audacity not only to touch the man, not only to pronounce him ceremonially clean, but he also has the audacity. He also has the audacity to send the man back to the priest and tell him to show himself to the priest. He touches the man, he pronounces him healed, he heals the man, and then he sends him back. He says, now go show yourself to the priests and offer the correct sacrifice that is commanded by Moses in the Old Covenant, in the book of Leviticus. And so what Jesus is showing is that he's not negating the law at all. He wants the people to follow the law because Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says this. Romans chapter 3 verse 20. What does it say in the word of God? Very, very significant passage of scripture. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Speaking of God. Adherence to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, will not cause a person to to be declared just as if they'd never sinned, as if they had never sinned, justified. Following the law does not cause that to happen, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Interesting. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, what Jesus is doing is he's causing the man to go back and to have a reminder of our fallen state of separation from God. All the rich truths that are in Leviticus chapter 13, turn with me, and Leviticus chapter 14, would be reminders That not only is this man a sinner, but the whole human race is guilty of sin. Separate from God, the law was given so that people would become conscious of sin. You can't adhere to all of the law. None of us do. But the law makes us realize, helps us to realize that we need somebody to come in and do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Rescue us, clean us, cleanse us, wash us, purify us. Look with me. Chapter 13 of Leviticus, chapter 1, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when a person has on the skin of his body swelling or an eruption or a spot, and by the way, by the time you get through all these verses here, we see that it could be an infection, an ulcer, a swelling, a boil, scales or scabs, eczema, some type of an issue on your head or if you're balding on your forehead or on the back of your head, I'm beginning to lose some of the hair on my head and wondering about... Some of these things myself, that's for another day. Yesterday, my arm touched a hot iron in our house, and I have a a wound on my elbow. If I let that thing go and it became infected, I would have 
this skin condition. I would be ceremonially unclean. I would need to go through what is described here in Leviticus chapter 13 and Leviticus chapter 14 if I was a Hebrew, if I was a Jew. In fact, if you're old enough, the older you get, the greater your chances that you too will have the exact same type of skin condition that's spoken of here in Leviticus chapter 13. That's how prevalent it was. That's how significant a reminder it was, and it is, that we live outside of Eden in a fallen world. We are guilty of sin, all of us, the human race. Sickness is a reminder that we live in a fallen world, and we need somebody outside of us to come and rescue us. So all of us have experienced this type of quote-unquote leprosy. We all have, and we all will at some point in our life. If you ever get a skin infection, if you ever have a scab, who among you has never had a scab? At some point in your life, you would have to go through all of this. Verse 2. He shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priests, and the priest shall examine the diseased area of the skin on the body. The end of verse 3. When the priest has examined it, he shall pronounce him unclean. But if the spot is white in the skin of his body and appears no deeper than the skin and the hair on it is not turned white, the priest shall shut up the diseased person for seven days. Verse 5, and the priest shall examine him. The priest shall shut him up for another seven days. Verse 6, the priest shall examine. The priest shall pronounce him clean. Who pronounces clean? The priest pronounces the person clean if the conditions are met. Verse 8, the priest shall look, shall pronounce him unclean if the conditions are not met. Verse 9, the priest. Verse 10, the priest. Verse 11, the priest shall pronounce him unclean. Verse 13, he shall pronounce him clean of the disease. He is clean. And the priest shall examine the raw flesh and pronounce him unclean. Verse 17, the priest shall examine him. And if the disease has turned white, then the priest shall pronounce the diseased person clean. He is clean. Jesus, what are you doing stepping in on the territory of the priests? This is something that is only set aside in the law of Moses for the priests to do. The priest is supposed to pronounce the person clean. Jesus is pronouncing the person clean. No priest. No priest on their best day could have been responsible for that person to be healed. Healing did not come from the priest. There's no example in the Old Testament of the priest causing someone to be healed. Jesus goes above and beyond the priest. He shows himself to be prophet Priest and purifier. Prophet, priest, and purifier. Priest, priest, priest. The priest is going to pronounce him clean. The priest is going to pronounce him unclean. Jesus is doing what only the priest could have done in the way that only Jesus could have done it, having touched the man. The miraculous healing demonstrates that Jesus has power not just to heal, but to pronounce a person who otherwise would be unclean, guilty in their sin, to be sin-free, clean, and whole. Don't you love Jesus? Only Jesus can do that. You might be in a situation where you say, I've done too much. We're all lepers, every single one of us. Some of us from our heritage are more like leprechauns. I realize that, but we're all lepers. 
We're all unclean apart from the touch of Jesus, apart from the finished work of Jesus on the cross. There's no sin too big, no sin too big. Even your success without success is not too big for Jesus to rein you in, cuddle you as a hen gathers her chicks, as Jesus describes in the Gospels, get you into an intimate place of abiding with him. There's no sin so great that the touch of Jesus can't take it away and pronounce you clean. That's why Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, for the forgiveness of mine. He does that at an entry level the moment you accept Christ, and he does it throughout the course of a Christ follower's life. Continually cleanses, continually washes. Listen, he's the high priest, he's the prophet, and he's the purifier. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is sending him deliberately to the priest to offer the sacrifice that's provided in, in Leviticus chapter 14. They're supposed to have two live, clean birds, ceremonially clean birds, some hyssop, a scarlet yarn, scarlet piece of thread, and on top of that, some cedar wood, some fresh water in an earthen bowl. One of those birds is to be killed. The blood of that bird is dipped into the earthenware vessel with the clean water, and it's signifying the water has also the cedar wood and the hyssop tied around that live bird with the blood from the other bird that was just killed, the idea of exchange of life. There must be the shedding of blood, a foreshadowing, a looking forward to the time when Jesus would shed his blood. The live bird was dipped in the dead bird's blood into that water with the hyssop and the cedar wood, aromatic wood, hyssop being aromatic, having, having cleansing properties, symbols reminding us of the cleansing power of God. Only God can remove sin and cleanse somebody. The scarlet yarn reminding us of the blood. The live bird gets dipped into that when the person is clean and then released into the wild. The bird is released, demonstrating symbolically that when God has removed the, your sin from you, you're released, you're set free. This is the idea of exchange of life. And so Jesus doesn't want the law to be sidestepped. He wants the man to practice the law because Romans 3.20, through the law, we receive a knowledge of sin. Through the law, we become conscious of sin. All this rich imagery, all this rich symbolism, Jesus knows that if the man goes back to the priest and shows himself, they would wonder, who is this man who pronounced you clean? Who is this man who healed you? Who is he? And so Jesus is demonstrating his affirmation of the law, that the law came from God. He's not sidestepping the law. He's affirming that the law came from God. Jesus is giving the man and the Israelites a tremendous opportunity to be reminded of our need for redemption, our need for an exchange of life. Somebody has to die in our place. That's why the sacrifice of Jesus is once for all, and we're not going back to birds and goats and bulls. That's why we don't go back to those things, because once the perfect has come, why go back to the foreshadowing of what was not yet to come, what had not yet come until the arrival of Jesus. Everything in its time and its place. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, as the book of Hebrews says, but Jesus has not manifest his glory the same way throughout history. There are different ways that God has manifest his glory. In the Old Testament, the blood of goats, bulls, 
Leviticus chapter 14, spend some more time in Leviticus. You'll see for yourself all that was required as rich object lessons. Jesus knew that if this man went back to the priest and showed himself, that they would investigate as they were required to do. They would investigate the healing and the healer. In Luke chapter 9, verse 22, a significant passage of Scripture, Jesus is not sidestepping the leaders of Israel. He's putting things right in front of their face. Luke chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is why, keep that up there for a second, this is why Jesus deliberately was showing himself to the leaders of Israel first, so that they had every opportunity from a legal standpoint to acknowledge or reject Jesus, that their guilt or their innocence would firmly and squarely fall on their shoulders. And when Jesus tells the man to present himself to the priests, to the scribes, all of the leaders of Israel in this particular case and elsewhere, Jesus, by so doing, gives them no excuse, no excuse to investigate the identity of Jesus. There's no leader of Israel who's going to be able to say, but we didn't know. If only you were humble. If only you would have investigated the prophet, the priest, the purifier, you too, would have been able to bow the knee and acknowledge. It's not till the book of Acts when we see, not till the book of Acts when we see that a large number of priests came into the faith and believed. Jesus is operating in such a way that there's absolutely no excuse for anybody, no excuse for anybody to recognize that he is the prophet, he's the priest, and he's the purifier. It's all about his identity. It's all about the identity of Jesus. People are coming. He's healing. Demons are getting cast out. He's pronouncing people who otherwise would be unclean as being clean. He's basically saying, in no uncertain terms, to be unclean is that your sin, your guilt is removed. And who can remove guilt but God himself? You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.